All right. Let's take our Bibles and go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And as you're turning there, I have a deep theological question I would like to begin with. Uh, how many of you have ever been to Carabas? Can I see your hand? All right. Um, how many of you love Carabas? All right. If you don't, we're going to have an invitation at the end of this service that you can repent um, if you don't. But uh, if you've ever been to Carabas, you know that they start out with, they call it the herbs. Now, it's not the kind that the crazy uncle smokes, but these are actually herbs that go in a little dish. If you've never been there, I'd encourage you to go. It's a great experience. And then they pour some olive oil in the dish, and they bring out this bread that is just, mmm. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's steaming, piping hot, and they just keep bringing it. And after going there a few times, I said, I would love to have Carabas at the house. So I did what you do in the 21st century. If you want to find something out, I got on the Google. And so I began to Google all of the ingredients for the dipping sauce, the, the herbs. And so I was able to find somewhat of a recipe, and, and I bought all of them. But this was when I was single, and my diet pretty much consisted of uh, protein shakes, cookout, and apples. And so I, I, never, I never ended up putting it together. And so once we got married, Jen's like, what are all these spices? And if you can't see it in the back, we have spices right here. She said, what is that? I said, well, you remember Carabas, the, the, the stuff that we, that we love, and this is where we can make it at home. And she said, how long have you had this? I said, for a while. <laughs> right, guys? You know, just like the canned goods from 2010 that she had to throw out when, when, when we got married and she moved in. And so, so she said, you've had that for all this time, but yet you never took the time just to put it together. And I said, I didn't, guilty as charged. And we have right here, if you try to steal this after church, I will punch you in the throat. Um, this is absolutely, I'm just kidding, I love you. Um, this, is, this is the final product. Um, and it's almost just like what you get at Carabas. So sometimes we have Italian meal at the house. You'll have some bread, put it in the toaster oven. Bread will come out hot. And then we have this in a little dish and we pour olive oil. It's awesome. It's so good. You guys are like, where are we going for lunch? We're driving all the way to Roanoke, right? And, uh, but I thought about that when she said you had all the ingredients, but yet you never took the time to put them together. You know, and, and this is our, our last message in our The Glory of God series. And I said, you know, how many times in my Christian life have I had these, these beliefs that are biblical, these truths that I know and these truths that we study, you know, like God is love. And there's the love of God. And then there's the, the holiness of God. And then there's the beautiful reality that we can even know God. And today we're going to talk about the omnipotence, the power of God, the omniscience of God. It means God knows all true possible propositions, like there's nothing that's ever occurred to God. All these mind-blowing truths that in many times in my Christian life I've had them separate, but I've not put them together with the understanding that these are not just truths and ideas and theological abstracts. When we talk about the nature of God, we're talking about a true living being. That should blow our minds. When we say God is, and when it's actually what Scripture says, we're not talking about these, all these separate compartments. But when you put those all together, guess what you get? You get Jesus. 
The Bible says that Jesus is the image of God. It means people all throughout history and even the Jews wondered specifically, well, what is God like? What would God do in this situation? Like, what if there's a guy and, and he has a physical deformity and he, he wants healing? What if it's on the Sabbath? Like, what would God do? They're like, well, God wouldn't do that on the Sabbath. Jesus showed them what God would actually do because Jesus was God and he healed on the Sabbath. I mean, all of those misconceptions and all those what ifs, Jesus came to establish, I am God in the flesh. So he put them all, all of these attributes, all of these characteristics and these descriptions and these truths of who God is. Jesus, the son of God in the flesh, we can look at Jesus and say, God is. It's amazing. And so what I want us to do in today as we kind of close out this series is, is, these things that we believe from Scripture about the nature of God, let's have a continuation of a move of the Holy Spirit of what we saw last week during the invitation. Um, and if you weren't here, it was an amazing message. Amen? I mean, it, it, the, Jen and I, we were going to come here to kneel uh, at the front and, and pray for our marriage, that the Lord would give us grace as we continue to go forward. And we couldn't really find anywhere to kneel down because there were families and moms and dads and husbands and, and wives just praying and weeping before God. And so as we kind of wrap this series up, I, I pray that what we take away is when we study the Word of God, we're learning who God is and I pray that for us that we would experience God today. That if you're interested in who God is but you've never been born again, I pray that today would be the day that he changes your heart. If you're a believer and you've kind of had a slow fade, you feel that your affections for Jesus are lessening, you feel like the gospel and church gatherings and ministry and missions and prayer just doesn't really spark your fire like it used to. I pray that today that the person and the nature and the reality of who God is, God himself, would just recharge our hearts and fire us up and jumpstart us for this fall season. And uh, next six weeks, starting next Sunday, we're going to look at uh, does God exist? We're going to look at all the classical questions that the atheists bring forth. If you have students uh, or grandchildren that are in any type of a school, whether they're planning on going in a trade school or college, the military. This is an amazing, amazing theory series. And for those of us who sometimes we say, you know what, I know for sure in my heart of hearts that God is real, but I don't know how to explain it. When somebody asks me, how do you know that God is real? Or when they say, prove to me God is real, it seems like I just, I don't know what to do and I kind of freak out and just kind of throw a random Bible verse. We're going to walk through how to address these questions. And let me just say, let's just open the floodgates. If you are not sure that God exists, I hope that you come. I would love to sit down and talk with you because at Rocky Mount Baptist Church, we believe that questions are legitimate. And we would love to be able to help you and walk with you through that. Amen, church? Now, this is not a place where you come in and people say, I cannot believe you had that question because we all have questions and God's word has answers. So next week, it's going to be a great, a great time. So let's go to Psalm 139, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to try to pull out uh, the truths that are there as it relates to God's power and God's knowledge, commonly known as God's omnipotence and God's omniscience. Let's begin there at verse number 1. The Bible says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. 
even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. God's omnipotence is very simply God is able to do all of his holy will. It means that there is, there's no man, no demonic force, no collection of people that could ever thwart what God desires to do. And God's omniscience, his all-knowing, could be defined as the doctrine that God knows himself and all things actual and possible. It's not talking about God doing illogical things like making square circles. It's not talking about God just because he's God declaring rape to be good instead of evil. But what it means is that God's will and God's nature is good. God is intrinsically good, and God's power extends with his goodness. So let's look at a few truths about God's power here this morning. In verses 1 through 6, what we just read, we see that God knows me in totality. In totality. This is Psalm 139 can be described as like a psalm, a prayer of absolutely unconditional surrender. Notice there in verse 1, it says that he has searched and known me. He knows, verse 2, when I sit down and when I rise up. This means that God completely knows all of my actions and all of my thoughts. Comforting or scary? All right, we've got honest people this morning. That's good. Church, it comforts me. It comforts me to know what God knew that I thought this week. Yeah, right. Like, the, the psalmist has thrown up that white flag of surrender like he says, you know. Look at verse 2. This is so awesome. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. This means that God knows my sleeping schedule. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. That means that God thoroughly, thoroughly knows our daily schedule. Like, he knows you're going to stop at Hardee's and get the biscuit. Like, he knows it. And it's funny when you talk to people who've been married for a long time, there's a couple in our church that in December, they're going to be celebrating 60 years together as a married couple. Uh, in Florida, there was a man uh, that I knew named Grover, and him and his wife had celebrated their 60th. And I said, Grover, what's the secret? And he said, give and take. And one was like, just, just man, a few words. I said, really? And then he kind of smirked. You know when those guys, they don't have much emotion, but you know when the lip begins to curl, you're like, let me pull out a pen and paper. It's going to be good. He's like, give and take. I take and she gives, you know. <laughs> and so Grover also understood humor, which can help out in marriages as well. But when you're with married people who've been married for a long time, it's like sometimes they fill each other's sentences in and you're like, 
Like you wouldn't do that with your friends because it would be weird, but they've been with each other for so long, they almost know what the other one's going to say. And they're rarely surprised by the other one, what they're going to do and say. But the psalmist is like, you know it all. And notice verse number four. This is even better. God knows my words before I say them. Notice what the text says. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Then kind of just a wrap around in verse five, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. And then he's like, God knows everything about me. And verse six, he's blown away. David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He's saying this reality that there's this being, that there is this one true God who knows everything about me, that blows my mind. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable because he says, I can't take it all in. Now, here's an encouraging thought for believers. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, right? God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So this is not scary big brother stuff. This is absolutely comforting because he's saying, I know the nature of God and I know who he is. So what he's saying is in verses one through six, he's saying that God knows me in totality. And let's just kind of make a, a trek today that God knows me in totality and know that he knows every single one of you. He knows what you're thinking right now. Carabas. Right, like, like he literally, literally knows what goes on in the inner battle of our hearts and minds when we're arguing with ourselves, when we're trying to convince ourselves to do something that we even know is wrong. God knows the inner dialogue. And notice in verses seven through nine, the psalmist is saying, you can't hide from God because he sees everything that happens and he sees everything that will happen. Look at verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Rhetorical question. Or where shall I flee from your presence? So he's saying, where could I possibly go? The answer is nowhere, and he describes it in verse eight. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. Now this is around 1000 BC. This is before drones that you can buy. This is before manned flight into space. This is before uh, the Wright brothers in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and, and understanding aeronautics. Like this is really as far as they could get up would be somebody taking a sling or, or an arrow and firing it way up in the air off the top of a mountain. Like that's, that's high. So what he's saying is I could go as high as I could possibly imagine and you will still know. There's a friend of mine whose dad was um, raised in the Soviet Union. And uh, my friend's a little, about as tall as I am, maybe an inch shorter. His dad's this little bitty guy. And he was actually a church leader in the Soviet Union in, in Russia um, while there was communism in control of that area of the world. And his dad apparently was very, very, very smart. I was able to speak with him through my buddy translating a couple of years ago, almost like an interview, because I was just blown away by this humble little man who had been under communist persecution. And there was this one point where he had made such good grades in school, the local uh, Soviets wanted to get him to join the Communist Party and declare there is no God and swear allegiance to the state. 
And he says, I can't say that there's no God because I know that there is a God. And this is back in the space age when everything was about science and space. So here's what they told him. They said, the Bible isn't true because it doesn't speak of space. Which if that's your argument, stop. I mean, just put it out, you know, and stop token on on the weed that grows in yonder field. Like, that's a terrible argument. But that's what they said. And he said, and I, this is so cool, I love this stuff. He said, God brought to mind Obadiah 1-4. Obadiah, this morning, a lot of Christians are like, that's, that, that, yeah, Obadiah, it's in, I didn't know it was in the Bible, right? Obadiah, and there's just, just one chapter that he's got, verse 4, and it's this. And he said he was able to quote it through the power of the Holy Spirit to these communist atheists. And it says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Bam! I mean, he was telling me that in a home. We were talking in Europe a few years ago. I was like, money! I mean, you talk about the Holy Spirit bringing back words. And he said, those guys couldn't believe that he knew that from the Bible, and they realized that the Bible actually spoke about stars and space, and they just left him alone. Amazing story of the goodness of God for a man who said, I will not bend and I will not break. You can do what you want to me, but I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I love that stuff. That fires me up. And notice this psalmist is going in the same direction when he says in verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. As high as I can go, you're there. Notice If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And we can be comforted for our friends and our loved ones who are on death's door. Maybe it's through disease. Maybe it's just through old age. And it's not going to be long before they are with Jesus. The psalmist said, God is there. The beautiful part is that Jesus is with us in life. And he carries us through death there is never a point to where he leaves us. Remember when Jesus left his disciples to go to the Father, he, he said, I'm sending my spirit to be with you. That's the spirit of Christ. And he says, I will be with you even until the end of the age. And Jesus is with us even through. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, when he comes to the river of death, the Lord walks with us through that as well. In verse 9, he's kind of pulling a little Jonah possibility a few hundred years before notice he says if i take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me what he's saying the most remote island in the middle of the sea god's presence for the believer will still be there jeremiah chapter 23 verses 23 and 24 say am i a god at hand declares the lord and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Deuteronomy ten fourteen. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. It means we can't hide from God if you're running from God. But here's the flip side. If you've been saved, no one can ever hide you from God. Imagine being a believer under persecution. You say, well, how should I respond to these realities here in these verses? Notice in verse 11 again, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me 
and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What he's saying is a modern translation. God has thermal night vision combined. He says, there's no place that I could ever be put. Remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah was thrown down into the pit because he was preaching the word of God. People didn't want to hear it. Even there, God's presence is there. He's saying that no one can ever take me and lock me away in a secret prison that God does not know about. So how should we respond? Number one, if you're a believer, man, this, just these truths for these few minutes should inspire us with confidence and assurance to say, I can have assurance that once I'm found, I'll never be lost. Never. Once I'm found by Jesus Christ, I'll never be alone. Even if there's no companions. Like David said, even if my mother and my, my father forsake me, you will not forsake me. And praise be to God that often when people walk away from us, he brings us someone else. The apostle Paul had experienced people walking away from him. And he says many times, like they've all walked away, but God would send him people like Barnabas to be an encourager. God would send him young men like Timothy. And if you're following Jesus Christ and you feel like people have walked away from you, God has not and he will never walk away from you. You see, this is where the hugeness of God's power is incredibly comforting. Incredibly comforting. And if this provides comfort to us, imagine what it would be like to be a persecuted believer outside of the United States of America. Imagine what it would be like in the first generation of Christians after Jesus ascended. You have Rome that marched on nation after nation after nation. You had the Roman legions and those giant machines that fired. If you've ever seen Gladiator, those giant six foot or so spears, they called them ballistas. And that's where we get our word ballistics for riflery and pistols. I mean, they had, they had, it was like space age weapons and they would march into areas and they would decimate the young men and they would kill the older men and they would take the women and the children and sell them on the open market. No one could withstand Rome. They marched into Gaul, modern day France, and there was only one battle that the entire nation was able to win against Caesar's small forces. If you read history, you're like, man, these guys make stormtroopers look like sissies unbelievable military power. Rome went even to the British Isles. I mean, they conquered areas of North Africa and Egypt. It was all under Caesar. You couldn't go anywhere to where Rome did not say, this is, this is mine. But then there was this Jewish carpenter named Jesus of Nazareth. And it Turns out that he is more than just a carpenter, amen, church. And now his followers began to do things like forgive their enemies. They begin to do things like go to the rivers to where the pagans would take their sons and daughters or the ones who were born crippled or deformed or the ones who were born on certain holidays who was supposed to be a bad omen who were exposed and left to die. These Christians would go take those precious children and raise them as their own and they would, they would preach the gospel and their lives would back up the gospel. And they believed that God was over Caesar. That's why they wouldn't burn incense. That's all you had to do to be cool in Rome. 
Just burn some incense, pitch it in a fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. They said, well, we will respect the government as long as, as we can, but Caesar's actually not Lord, and I'm a Christian. I cannot lie, so therefore, Jesus is Lord. That's a radical statement, and these Christians begin to die, and they begin to, they begin to give the gospel with their lives. And people would say things like, you can never run away from Caesar. You can go to any end of the empire and Caesar will be able to see you. But the Christians would say things like, there's no place that Caesar can go that God can't find him. Come on. It was revolutionary. And in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, God's power, his omnipotence raised Jesus from the dead and his all-knowingness, his, his power was displayed by the fact that Jesus' life and death dovetailed together and it continued the long war against God. Satan tried to move through the Roman Empire to eradicate and destroy the church, but we know what happened even from secular history, that Christians slowly began to Christianize the Roman Empire till several hundred years after Jesus. The gladiatorial games were banned in Rome. It, you were not allowed several hundred years after Jesus. You were no longer allowed to expose your infants. Human rights became a reality because of the gospel. And if we could fast forward however long it's gonna be, there's gonna be a day where the armies of the world are gonna to try to gather themselves against God and the battle called Armageddon. And the Bible tells us in so many words it's gonna be over quicker than a 1980s Mike Tyson fight. Back in the day, people would pay big money, man, you know, to get that fight on TV and you'd go to get a drink of water, come back 15 seconds later, Big Mike had knocked him out. Devastating left uppercut. The guy left his left with vertebrae damage for the rest of his life. I mean, it was over that quick. And the Bible says there's going to be a day that in Revelation chapter 6 to where everyone, the small and the great, are going to cry for the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Meaning a guilty world that's refused to give allegiance to God, refused to repent. When God finally comes in judgment, they're going to be crying out, hide us, hide us. But there's no place to hide. People say, well, Jeff, how long is that going to be? I don't know. But I do know that we watch probably the same news and we see the beheadings with ISIS and we see persecution with Boko Haram, which is a Muslim uh, militia slash warlord organization in Africa, Africa that is killing Christians. The Bible tells me in Romans chapter 2 that God is storing up wrath. God is not waiting. He's not idly standing by. God is storing up wrath that one day everything will be made right. And all of the perpetrators will have nowhere to hide and justice will be done. Which, by the way, if you're a Christian, we believe in grace and mercy, but we also believe in justice. And do you see how this comfort for believers could be an absolute terror for a person who refuses to turn to Jesus. Professor Thomas Nagel, an atheist professor at New York University in New York, says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want a universe like that. 
You see, many times our lifestyle can preclude us to unbelief, but the psalmist is saying when we understand the beauty of who God is and how his power and how his knowledge are revealed through who he is, which is love, that should motivate us not just to casual comfort, to say, oh, I can't, God loves me, so I'm just going to live my life for myself. No! It shouldn't lead us to terror like we've got big brother always watching us. What it should lead us to, brothers and sisters, is genuine true belief to say if all of that is true about God, who am I? Have you ever thought about that? Who, who am I that he would notice me? Even more so, who am I that God would offer me forgiveness through his precious son, Jesus, and more than that, that God would offer me the hand of friendship and mind-blowingly above everything that God would offer me forgiveness and save me and adopt me as his child when me, who's so full of pride and pettiness and sin and stupidity and arrogance, that God would offer me the chance to receive grace, to become his son or his daughter? Do we understand the craziness of that? That God would offer us grace? It's like the sketchy midget on Princess Bride, inconceivable. It's mind-blowing that God would offer that. You see, when we realize who he is and who we are and how much he knows about us, but yet how much he still loves us, Oh my goodness, that should motivate us to true, genuine belief. So it's no longer us wanting to look good. We want to make him look good because he's awesome. I mean, he is mind-blowingly amazing, awesome, logically, love-wise, emotional, everything together, the whole ball of wax, that is who God is. So when we realize that he knows everything, but he still offers us grace, he still offers us a chance to be forgiven, he offers us himself through Jesus, then the big question is, who am I to refuse such a king? Who, who am I to tell him I'm not ready? I mean, is it right in any scenario for me to tell this king, the beautifully broken but resurrected Lord over all of history, not yet? This is what Bruce Van Horn said. He said, this needs to be the year you stop telling God what you think he should do. And it may be for many of us that we stop looking at life, at church, the Bible, theology as different things, like these different ingredients for the Carabas dipping sauce, and we put them together and experience who Jesus is. Do you know Jesus? Have you ever been born again for real? Has there ever been a change that's actually stuck? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you have a desire for God? Are you willing to take self and say, you know what, it, could, it may be embarrassing, it may be hard, but I'm ready to follow Jesus. Are, 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 you, are you there? Do we realize the insanely awesome offer of the gospel? And it doesn't stop there. This is, this is even more so 
that he offers to save us, but keep us saved. You track with that? Like he offers to keep us as his child, even though if it were up to us, we would have all blown it and gone back to hellbound years ago. But in his mercy, he's the one who saves us. He's the one who adopts us. And he simply asks for us to obey, which is to participate with the king of the universe in the greatest plan that's ever been formed in the universe, which is the gospel which is giving hope to men, women, and students who are lost without God, but letting them know they can be forgiven and they can be changed. Have you been changed? Is Christ Lord of your life, Christian? Are you living in such a way that reflects the magnitude of the glory of God? If we could be honest, and I'll be honest with you, I don't always do that. But I'm asking the Lord that he would give us a collective sense of the greatness of God and the greatness of what we've been offered, contrasted with what we all deserve.